Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Drunken PM Radio. I'm recording in Philly this morning before day two of a CSM class, and Steve Martin is here. We're co-teaching the class together, and we're going to take time to do a quick podcast following up on something that came up in a previous class. I was doing a CSPO class a few weeks ago, and one of the topics that came up repeatedly during the retrospectives when I asked the question of what's holding you back from being a better product owner, there were a lot of people that felt that they were lacking in skills around negotiation and how to build consensus with stakeholders and how to push back. Um, so Steve's got more experience dealing with the executive level. So I wanted to ask Steve questions about this. But first, Steve, do you want to tell these folks who you are? Hi, good morning. Hey, thanks, Dave, for having me. Uh, appreciate being here. So a little bit about myself. I've been working in and around technology for about 30 years, starting off in a technology role, then going to a business analyst role, and then the last 10 years really focusing on helping organizations make that transition. And so what your person said in the last class, we've heard many times. Many times. <laughs> many yeah, times. so yeah. Uh, the good news is that uh, you're not alone. <laughs> but the bad news is, you know, there's some actions that we need to take in order to address some of those situations. Okay, so let me, let me give you a little more background. So what I know of this place is that, and I'm generalizing a little bit, but, um, in terms of the work that's done, management makes decisions and hands down projects. And so these people are given projects and they're told, here's the project, here's the date, get it done, here's the scope, but use Agile. Oh, and probably here's some other stuff we'd like to add in along the way. Yeah, do it my way, but don't change, but make right. it Agile. Exactly, and so these people are put in these product owner roles, but they're not necessarily trained in how to go about pushing back. They maybe don't have skills around negotiation, things like that. So. Where do you get started with that? Yeah, so when you run into a situation like that, um, it, it just kind of reminds me of some of the work that I'm doing right now. Uh, did a minor career pivot, and I actually started to go back to school working on my PhD. And the topic is, how do you work with mid-level managers and above okay. when there is change? All right, so and this is exactly so what they're asking about. Exactly. Okay. So the good news is that there's a lot of data, a lot of studies out there from even in the 1970s. Okay. So this, this is not a new problem. Um, the big thing is that there needs to be some understanding of what those actions are having on the teams when you've got a management team or an executive team uh, that is doing those types of very directorial slash um, very directive Traditional mandates. command and control. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So basically, so they don't understand the impact. Exactly. Okay. And so it's going to be partly educating the management, the executives, what their actions are having upon the team. Okay. So it's difficult to go to an executive and just say, you know what, buddy, you suck. Stop. You, you're you're doing this wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, especially if the waterfalls how they got their corner office to begin with. Absolutely. And so when you get to a certain position, again, a lot of the studies are saying that there's actually a resistance to change because exactly what you just said, because that's how they got to be there. Right. And they've got quote more to lose. And so they're going to tend to want to stick to things that uh, are tried and true, okay. things that they know, things that they've experienced. And so when you start talking about these things such as you know empowerment and getting some of the, quote, control that they have and dispersing it out there. And localizing decision-making and yeah, things like that. It, it's, it's hard for that concept to really resonate. 
Um, So with those types of folks, I use one of two approaches. Um, uh, The less frequent approach is to use data. Okay. Um, so Why is less frequent? Because most of the executives that I work with, and this was also backed up by an IBM study done about five, ten years ago, is that most decisions are made based off of a gut reaction okay. versus a thought or thinking reaction. Okay. And, you know, it sounds kind of funny that you've got all these people collecting all this data, but you're still going to come down to... I'm Steve Jobs. I know what you want. <laughs> exactly. Here's what my gut is telling me, and darn it, I'm going to do it my way. Uh, they don't usually say darn it, by the way. Um, and so to try to say that, all right, literally 30 years of studies are saying that if you disseminate power... <laughs> multitasking doesn't work. <laughs> multitasking doesn't work. <laughs> and you actually localize decision-making capability... First of all, you're going to have higher job satisfaction. Okay. Uh, you're going to be more innovative because the people who are working on that specific problem are going to be tending to work day-to-day, hand-in-hand with the people who are experiencing that problem so they can solve okay. that problem much faster. Uh, if you give somebody the ability to make a decision, they have greater buy-in right. and have more passion. And you just basically But that's get a exactly what the executives are doing. They're they're passionate about it. They've made the decision this yeah. is gonna happen. Yeah. So go get it done. Yeah. But an executive can't be everywhere. That's true. Okay. You know. And so what we try to do is say, all right, that's what the data is saying. How about we take a look at what are the impacts your decisions are having? And so I start using some uh, logic and some um, some feeling, you know, do it again okay. now with feeling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with the conversation with that executive. You've got to have empathy for them and their resistance to change as well to be able to absolutely, do this. Absolutely, because they're under pressure. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people understand the amount of pressure that they're under and seeing it from, from the shareholders and everybody else. Yeah, yeah, seeing it from their point of view. Okay. And so what I try to say with those mid-level managers and executives is not that you're doing this wrong, but here's the impact that you're having on your team. Is that what you really want to do? Yeah. Okay. So you're saying, do this, do this, do this. And then you're busy. You have to go and do things. Are you going to spend the time to go back there and, quote, check up, check in, give feedback along the way? Right. Or are you going to get upset when they come back two, three weeks later, like, oh, that's not what I wanted? Exactly. Okay. And so there is that realization that those types of things happen. If they're going to give that directive, they need to be there to provide the constant feedback that's needed. And that's the same as getting them into the sprint review and things like that, to look at the work as well as understanding how they're impacting the teams and they jam work into their sprints and whatever. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, we, we want a PO to be available to the teams. Right. Well, if they're the ones who are effectively, the executives who are effectively being the PO because they're directing, here's how we're going to get value. Right. They need to be available. Okay. They don't have time to be available. And so... So then they have to trust. They have to trust. Okay. They have to trust. And, well, how do you build that trust is, is the next question. And that's where you have to have that good working relationship between the PO and who's ever giving that directive. Okay. And so maybe you start scheduling 15-minute coffees in the morning. Here's where we're going. 
maybe you've got demonstrations that you can video and you can send to them and they can see it every day. Okay. So you can show your progress in the direction that you're going to give the visibility, but okay. maybe not to have them there day to day. And then over time, you can build up a pattern of delivery, feedback, and that in turn starts to build some of that trust. And then they'll feel like they want to become more engaged, hopefully. Yeah, so one of two things happens is uh, they become either more engaged and hopefully more helpful as opposed to, air quotes, right. helpful. Yeah, <laughs> seagulling in. Because <laughs> we know what seagulls do when, yes. they, uh, when they come in. <laughs> um, or the second thing is, you know what, teams, you got it. Okay. But that doesn't happen overnight, and people need to realize that this is going to be a journey for the executive just as much as it is a journey for the PO and the teams. Okay. But if you just kind of go in there and say, hey, you're doing it wrong. It won't work. <laughs> so I, can I, I want to come at it from a different angle. So sure. that's, from everything you just explained, I totally agree with, and I can see where you as a coach could go in and have those conversations. If I am somebody who has been moved into a PO role, new to that role, at a company, don't want to lose my job, don't have a lot of feeling of power or haven't been, quote, empowered by the company, how do I develop the ability? I mean, if I can't coach them, because I'm not in that position, they don't look at me that way. I need to develop tactics and, and tools that I can use to start to have conversations to push back. And my, my background, like I... I always go to the data and I just keep using it over and over and over again until their fists get tired of punching me and then I win because I have math <laughs> and history. But that's not necessarily the healthiest or most effective way to do it. So if, if you were coming in and coaching somebody at that level, somebody on a team, somebody who's below the layer of middle management, not part of the PMO, how would you kind of help them get started on the path of developing either better negotiation skills or, or kind of practicing that stuff? Like how, how should they get started? Because that's, that's where a lot of these people are. Yeah, I find that, especially when you're new to that particular role, it's not just having the data that's there. Okay. You, whenever you infect change, you need to find the people who can help you with that change. So you need a champion. You need a champion, exactly. Either a mentor okay. or a trusted advisor. Uh, somebody from the PMO, a scrum master, somebody from the agile practice. Okay. Somebody who has that relationship with that executive to help you with those conversations. Okay. Somebody who can kind of form that beachhead and help you get in there. And they Absolutely. create the space for you to have the conversation. Absolutely. Okay. What if you don't have a champion? You what if you don't have a champion and the PMO is still trying to, like, they're kind of reeling from this thing? And then this isn't that organization, but worst case scenario, the PMO doesn't know what his job is anymore because you've switched over to Agile or half switched over to Agile. You don't have a champion because that's the part where I'm sort of like, you get a different job at a different company. <laughs> but that's not a very necessarily helpful solution. It's definitely not going to help the company. Yeah. Regardless of, and this is going to be a little controversial when I say this, regardless of whatever approach that you use, right. you still need to get a product out the door. Yes. Right? Yeah, and that's where the whole thing, get it done by this date. we got to keep the, the thing rolling. Right. But how do you know that you got the right product out the door? Right. And so if I don't have a champion, I don't have a buddy, I'm there uh, as an island. Yep, or a um, scapegoat. Or a scapegoat. 
having the ability to deliver and get that trust is absolutely essential. Okay. So assuming that you do want to stay there, assuming that you believe in the product, assuming that you have a team that can actually create the product, yeah, you need to be able to deliver and have a, uh, a baseline of we can do this okay. and we can have these things here. Sometimes you have to do those types of things in a small incremental way just to establish some baseline of I can trust this person, okay. they've actually delivered for me. And, tr and not just the person, but the, the change in process, I mean, the whole mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so while I would love to say, go in there, guns blazing, hold your ground, you know, it's either agile or the highway, right. you know, sometimes that's not the best career move. <laughs> well, it's, I think it's, I mean, it's not just that. I think it's important to recognize if people are in that situation, like you have to make a choice. Either I'm going to stay and help this company get there, and yeah. I'm going to realize that this battle is going to be very difficult in the beginning because maybe I don't have a champion, I don't have that support. I have to start to build that from the grassroots or I am going to pull the ripcord. So if you sign up to stay, that's like I'm always trying to coach people into trying to be more patient. The, the fact that it took maybe 100 or 200 years to get that company, if it's an older financial mm -hmm. company, into the state that it's in, it's going to resist change. And you might make a tiny little dent that feels to you like it has no impact at all, but if you don't make that dent, the next thing's not gonna happen and that's how you get further down the path. Yeah, and so say that you've got that executive coming and saying, I need this exact scope by this exact day, uh, but do it agile, I can say, okay, fantastic. One of the huge things is, you know, expect, adapt, and be transparent. Yeah. What we're going to do is, every couple of weeks, show you our progress okay. in small increments. And so that starts to set a seed of, okay, at least there's transparency. Sure. And at least we're doing things in increments. Okay, so instead of doing all the design and then all the build and then all the test, you can start to do, okay, Smaller we've got some, yeah, we've okay. got some design and some testing that we've done at the same time. And look at this awesome thing that we can the click on. Has, yeah. So you haven't really addressed the problem of fixed scope, fixed time, but like you said, you've started to introduce some of those concepts, okay. you know, that are really based in trying to get more towards a collaboration end of things as opposed to just fulfill the contract that I'm setting out for you on this exact specific plan. Okay. So you're still showing progress, but you're starting to introduce some of those concepts along the way. Okay. So you're teaching them about it. Uh -huh. um, you're so, teaching it by doing it. Yeah, by showing them the yeah. results. So one thing that I've done with PMs in the past, if they're particularly bad at conflict, or I had one who was just terrified every time she got in front of executives, <laughs> uh -huh. I would do role playing with them and I yeah. would play the part of like, I'm going to shoot down every freaking idea you throw at me and just be pushed back as hard as I can until they solve the puzzle. And not that that's necessarily going to be the answer, but I think having those battles in a safe environment can help them think quicker on their feet. I mean, have you done anything like that? Or like, what if, if I, are there books? Are there ways they can practice different things they can do to try to get maybe s stepping away from agile, like how would you get more comfortable in general at building, cons you know, building consensus with people that don't necessarily feel inclined to trust you or dealing with conflict and telling people, listen, I know you want that, but you can't have it. I mean, that's scary for a lot of folks. Yeah, 
Um, there's actually two good books <laughs> like, out He just there. pulled up some books on his website, and these are the exact <laughs> books that I told people. Anybody's going to tell you you have to read these two books. Yeah, uh, it's uh, Getting to Yes, and I believe it's Getting, Getting Past, Past no. no. Yeah, Those are two fantastic easy reads okay. um, that I highly, highly, highly recommend. Uh, when I start working with folks to deal with conflict and how to negotiate, I, I do a couple things. Um, the first thing I do is I start to work through, okay, what is the outcome that you're looking for? Right. And then I want you to sit down, either write on post-it notes, you know, scribble on a piece of paper, right. but there's something about handwriting that I want you to write down what are the objections and what would your responses be? Okay, so they're actually thinking through it, playing out the other side of the argument for themselves. Yeah, and I find That's that people really try to stop at, here's the objection and here's my reply. Yeah. They forget that executives in particular like to come back. <laughs> Well, that's with, but that's with part of empathy too. I mean, it's not just empathy for them and their position, but seeing it from their side. Absolutely. And so, don't just stop at one objection, one response. Right. Think about okay, it's like the ripple effect. Yeah. That's going to probably generate one, two, or three different responses. I want you to think about what as the objection is to that, okay, and how you'd respond to that. And so, I want you to do that two or three times. And so for the folks that need to kind of think through those different things, yeah. I like to do that one or two times. Okay. And then once they've done that exercise, I then do the role play, kind of like what you did. Okay. So that's and great. And I, you know, I just, and I'm like very, very empathetically say, yeah. I'm going to shoot everything down for you, and here's the reason why. Now, the first time I do it, I'm not going to do it and come at them hard. <laughs> Okay. I'm going to come at it like a calm tone of voice like we're talking about here. Right. The second time, I'm, amp going, it up to, a little. I'm going to amp it up okay. over time. So by the time we get to the third one, I'm like, this is just wrong. This is bull. You yeah. know, you can insert a You can there. say foul words yeah, okay. in this podcast. I, I like this. <laughs> this is there. You know, you are the biggest blank I've ever seen. Right. And then so sometimes when I get to my fourth or fifth one, before they even get the first sentence out, I just say, leave my office now. <laughs> That's awesome. I don't want to hear it. Okay. You know, and I want to see what their reaction is. Okay. And so that usually gets the wide-eyed. Yeah, like, what the hell? <laughs> You're here to help me. <laughs> All right. So one of the things I always recommend is the art of work, because there's a whole practice in that about understanding your environment from multiple dimensions. Like, what are the politics? What's the organizational structure? How's the leadership style working? what motivates those people, what's the culture. Yeah. And if you can see all those things, those are different ways that you can crack into the puzzle. Like what you just described, I think, is awesome. And the more different angles that you can come at it from, it's like, I feel like the better prepared you're gonna be. So in the same way that I wouldn't want a team to commit to work that they hadn't figured out how they were gonna do, I wouldn't want anybody to walk into a conflict situation with the hope that it was just gonna happen because Ooh. that's insane. Hope is a great strategy. <laughs> you just <laughs> made Mike Kottmeyer very happy. <laughs> one, of my, one of my earliest mentors, this is like more than <clears throat> 25 years ago, just basically said to me, Steve, hope is not a strategy. Yeah. And that has always stuck with me. But I think when you go into a negotiation type of situation, yeah, you need to understand who those people are. Yeah. Uh, but I also think a really good person who understands um, what we're working with can 
argue both sides clearly yeah. of a particular position, argument. I so think that's really good. That. If you can if you can fight their position as well as your own, then you're probably ready to go have the conversation. Absolutely. Okay. This is awesome. Um, and it just points back to the fact that the film Knock Around Guys is a giant source of wisdom. <laughs> Thank you, Vin Diesel. <laughs> Excellent. Is it Vin Diesel? Yeah, I think it is. The line is 500 fights is what it takes to be a tough guy. And once you've had 500 fights, you are a tough guy and yeah. you can fight anybody and you don't care anymore. Yeah. But and like, if you can get to the point where you can have that battle from either side without blinking, you should be solid. Absolutely. And, you know, it's one of those things that you still have to remain true to yourself. Right. You know, if there comes a point, and I've done this before, uh, another bit of advice that I've had is you have to be willing to um, fight for what you believe in. Right. And be willing to either be fired or walk away. And, and, and leave the battle, regardless of what happens, without regret. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's, that's actually one of the points that uh, Fisher and Yuri, U-R-Y, plug. When she's looking it up on the website. <laughs> that they try to meet, make okay. is you have to know your walk away point. Okay. And I have walked away from certain things and uh, not emotionally, just kind of going and saying. It hits that line. You're like, yeah, it's not worth it And anymore. like, here's, here's why it's not worth it and here's okay. why. Um, Sometimes that's turned into good conversations and I've stayed for a little bit longer. And sometimes right. we just both agree that, you know what, it's, it's not the right fit. And to realize that, you know, <laughs> it's not me, <laughs> you know, it's they, you, it's you. <laughs> it's you. But I think it also applies to, it might not just be walking away from the job. It could be, this is not the battle I'm going to win. I mean, that's, that's another thing out yeah. of the art of war. You have to realize when you're in a position of weakness, and when it's time to turn away because you're not going to succeed here. And maybe you need to have this battle later at a different point. Absolutely. Because that problem's not going to go away. It's going to keep coming back until the company figures it out. And if you don't solve it, somebody else is going to have to later on. Absolutely. And I just, I remember very clearly in my 20s, of course, in my 20s, I knew everything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I you got I've, a late start. I was, I was there when I was 17. <laughs> I knew everything, yeah. and I, I had to win every battle. Everything I, I took everything as a battle, and once I finally had somebody who was smart enough to take me aside and say, you know, stop might, being an asshole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I believe this. Uh, the saying was, "Steve, you're being a." There you <laughs> go. <laughs> and uh, because they used that language with me, it, yeah, and I'm just like, oh, kind of hit. Yeah. All right. Like, well, what am I doing? Yeah. Well, and and that's you always want to maintain a sense of respect for the other person, even if they're not doing it to you, I think. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, regardless of how many tough people that I work with, um, understanding the type of conversation that you're going in and trying not to take things personally, Yeah. Um, it's really odd because there's a lot that it takes to rattle me. I was um, with a VP of sales at a Wall Street firm Literally for 35 minutes, he was yelling at me. And of course, I'm, I'm in my head. I'm like doing my to-do list. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what I was I'm like. I've know, been doing project thinking. management for 20 years. You can just cut me up into tiny little pieces. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's cool. And it was funny. And after he was finished, you know, you know, all red-faced, you know, you know, flustered, you know, and just right. sweaty all over the place. I just looked him in the eyes and Are I just said, "Are you done?" <laughs> exactly. Which pissed him off even more. 
Yeah, but they're out of gas. They're out of gas. But that, I think that's part of it too. Sometimes you have to let them kind of explode so that they can hear. Yeah. You know, but you have to not put yourself at risk. Like there's all this stuff about safety. I don't ever want to feel like I'm in a bad place where I can't recover or can't maintain myself, but Absolutely. I also want to let them kind of expel whatever they have to yeah. expel. I was, I, I chose at that point to let him, you know, in a safe way, in a closed door, you know, release his pressure valve. Yeah. That's what he needed to do. But you chose that. That's, that's yeah. the thing about it. It has to be an intentional choice. I'm putting myself in front of this bus. Uh-huh. I'm going to let it hit me. And afterwards, we're going to talk about safety. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Should have wore a helmet that yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, I think, like you were saying, is that it wasn't a situation where I felt unsafe. Okay. And then the funny thing is, is actually we became actually pretty good friends. Yeah, well, that's, that's the thing. Is like they'll often respect you more <laughs> afterwards because they, I think once, it's sort of like that bullying thing. Once they know they've got your number, you're done. Yeah. Um, but you, so I think being able to stand up to that's important. Yeah. Um, thank you for doing this. So you've yeah. got um, some events coming up. Absolutely. So uh, I'm proud to say that I've uh, recently achieved my certified Scrum at Scale trainer. Okay. Uh, and I'll be doing three to four sessions coming up. Got one in okay. August, late August in D.C., and a couple in October. And then we're looking at the schedule beyond that. Okay. And you've got Seminars World. Seminars World uh, through PMI organization. I've with got... Ian Frazier, who we just did a podcast <laughs> with. That was the last podcast. So. Awesome. And uh, I'm excited to do one of my classes with them, which is called Catapult Your Leadership Skills. Okay. And it's viewing leadership through the lens of agile values and principles. Okay. And so it's really targeted at those folks who want to learn how to lead um, in an agile organization, especially in those organizations that are not exactly agile. <laughs> Well, if they were, they probably wouldn't be there. All right. So what if people want to get in touch with you with follow-up questions or to find out about your events, things like that? What's yeah, the best you way can to uh, take a look at my website, uh, www.cottagestreetconsulting. Okay. It's Cottage Street Consulting, all one word. You can take a look at it there. I've got blogs, articles, past presentations from past conferences, uh, all free download. I don't collect any information. On top of that, I've got my upcoming courses as well, okay. both certification courses and non-certification courses. And Twitter and LinkedIn and all that uh, LinkedIn stuff? Uh, LinkedIn, you can look up Agile Steve. All right. That's <laughs> nice and easy. Cool. Dude, thank you for doing this. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs>